Well, many times in life, we are quick to see a problem. And oftentimes, if we are part of that problem, we are slow to see our own fault or to see our own blame in that problem. Really, at the, uh, the current time in uh, our nation and in our world uh, with this pandemic that has been circling the globe, everybody knows there's a problem. Everyone sees that there's a problem. There's a new virus that's getting people sick. It's uh, taking people's lives. And there are many people that are working feverishly in the government and the healthcare system to try and fix this problem and find a solution. We're thankful for those people. But you know, even in this crisis and in others in our culture, um, we still see this desire to cast blame on someone else. There's a news program that we watch at night, and this guy looks like he's in a warehouse. And so oftentimes when he's interviewing people uh, online, he, he's, he's asking them about, well, what do you think about this or about that? And, and he's oftentimes trying to cast blame and trying to figure out whose fault is this or that. He's said things and others have said things like, well, if China had reported this, then none of this would have happened. Well, if the president had acted quicker, then, you know, none of this would have happened. Well, if healthcare suppliers could get the test results back quicker for COVID-19 to the patients, then none of this would have happened. And blame has shifted, and it's tried to place, be, be placed elsewhere. And, you know, man has been uh, very good at shifting blame for a long time. In fact, way back since Genesis chapter 3, ever since sin entered the world, Man has been a blame shifter, always trying to find who's at fault and very rarely looking at themselves. We see this in Genesis 3.10. says, And he said, talking about Adam, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. So we see the very first accusation of Adam blaming God. You're the reason that I'm hiding. It goes on in Genesis 3.11-12. He said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree, and I ate. And so we see the second accusation. Adam blames his wife, Eve. It's not my fault, he says. Genesis 3.13, Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you've done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me, and I ate. So we see Eve casting blame on the, surf, on the serpent. And Jesus knows that this is our nature. He knows that this is what we do. And he tells us whenever we're thinking, whenever we're in the middle of a conflict, we're thinking about how to deal with it. He talks about this in Matthew chapter 7. He says, this is so counterintuitive to you because of your sinful nature, but remove the log out of your own eye first. Think about your contribution to the problem first before you try to remove the speck out of your neighbor's eye. He talks about this in Matthew 7, 3. We have this sinful tendency to do just the opposite and to be blame shifters. Well, tonight as we reflect on Good Friday and the crucifixion, I want us to examine this question. And it's a question that we are so good at posing oftentimes. Whose fault is this? Whose fault is this? Why did Jesus die? Someone has to be blamed for this because this just doesn't seem right. Somebody's got to be held accountable. And there are actually many parties that can take that blame. Some of who were directly there on the scene that, that, uh, during that time, but many who weren't. And so as we looked at in the video before we started the message, were you there when they crucified the Lord? 
might say, well, no, I, obviously I wasn't there. But we're going to look at this question and see, but were you? And any of, is any of the blame yours? And we're going to answer some of these questions tonight. So we're going to be in Luke uh, chapter 22, if you want to open your Bibles and turn there this evening. The first point we're going to look at tonight is the sin of the chief priests, scribes, and officers. They are certainly to blame for the crucifixion of Jesus. We read this in Luke 22, verses 1 through 5. Now the feast of unleavened bread drew near, which is called the Passover. And the chief priests and the scribes were seeking how to put him to death, for they feared the people. Then Satan entered Judas, called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad, and they agreed to give him money. The chief priests and the scribes, they hated Jesus. You might ask, well, why? Why do they hate Jesus so much? And there's many reasons, but a couple that stand out to me. One is found in Mark 15.10. It says, For he, Pilate, perceived that it was out of envy that the chief priests had delivered him up. You see, Jesus was very popular. The crowds were in awe of Jesus. And the people that the scribes and the Pharisees shunned, the tax collectors and the prostitutes, even those people were drawn to Jesus. Everyone seemed to love Jesus. And the chief priests and the scribes absolutely hated that Jesus was receiving all the attention. They couldn't stand it. So they were envious of Jesus. Why else? Well, another reason was he exposed their so-called holiness for what it really was, which was pride and selfishness. We see this in Matthew 23, verses 27 through 28. He says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you're like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also appear out." Uh, right to, you also appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. See, they looked great on the outside to other people, but we know that God is not impressed with outward appearances. It talks about this in 1 Samuel sixteen seven. Whenever Samuel is looking for the next king and he's looking for somebody who's, who looks mighty, who's tall, who's uh, rugged, and God says, now wait a second, I look at the heart. Man looks at the outward appearance. I'm looking for somebody that's a person after my own heart. And these guys got exposed because their hearts were not connected to the Lord at all. And when their darkness was exposed, they hated Jesus for that. And verse 5 tells us that the chief priests and the officers, they were glad to give Judas a bribe to see Jesus killed. They said, this would, this would make us so happy if we can get rid of this guy. So were the chief priests, the scribes, the officers, were they responsible for the death of Jesus? Yes, they were. Their sins of envy and pride and loving the praise of man made them want to get rid of Jesus. Yes, they were certainly to blame. But there's other people that are to blame as well. Secondly, we see the sin of Judas. Judas is an easy target for us to blame him for the cause of Jesus' death. As we read back through a couple of verses that we looked at and add one to it in Luke 22, 3 through 6, it says, Then Satan entered into Judas called Iscariot, who was of the number of the twelve. He went away and he conferred with the chief priests and officers how he might betray him to them. And they were glad and they agreed to give him money. So he consented and he sought an opportunity to betray him to them in the absence of a crowd. 
Now here you could maybe read this and maybe blame Satan for what Judas did, but what I think really is going on is Satan is simply using an opportunity for what was already going on in Judas's heart. Judas's heart was filled with greed, and we see his hypocrisy in John chapter 12, verses 4 through 8. It says, But Judas Iscariot, one of his disciples, he who was about to betray him, said, Why was this ointment not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? And he said this, not because he cared for the poor, but because he was a thief. And having charge of the money bag, he used to help himself to what was put into it. And Jesus said, leave her alone, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For the poor you will always have with you, but you will not always have me. Just like the chief priests and the scribes, Judas put up a really good front. He acted like, I care for the poor, I want to take care of those that are in need But John points out at the time of the writing of his gospel, Judas really only cared for himself. He stole from Jesus and he stole from the rest of the disciples. And as Satan entered him, I think he was simply empowering Judas to follow his heart. That's something we hear a lot in our culture, isn't it? To follow your heart. That can be a very, very dangerous thing to do. In Jeremiah chapter 17, it says that our heart is deceitful above all things. Who can know it? And so Judas was following his heart. Satan helped him to do that. His heart was filled with earthly treasure, not heavenly treasure. And Jesus warned him and others in Matthew 6, 21, when he said, where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Judas had his heart filled with earthly treasure. And so he didn't care enough about Jesus to not betray him. And he gave him up for 30 pieces of silver. So was Judas responsible for the death of Jesus, yes, he was. His sins of hypocrisy and selfishness and greed made him want to get rid of Jesus. But there's other people to blame still. Thirdly, we see the sin of the disciples. The sin of the disciples. The disciples as a whole um, are blamed, can be blamed for Jesus' death. And as we look at Luke 22, just to summarize verses 7 through 23, Jesus uh, makes a uh, Passover preparation for him and his disciples in the upper room. And Jesus goes through and he tells them that I'm going to have to suffer. And you see this bread, this is like my body that's symbolic. It's going to be broken for you. And you see this cup, this is my blood that's going to be spilled for you. And he even tells them that one of his own disciples, one of his best friends, is going to betray him. What do the disciples do in response? Well, I'll tell you what they didn't do and what they should have done. Man, Jesus, that is terrible. Is there anything that we can do for you during this tough time? But what do they do instead? Instead, they start arguing about who's going to be the greatest in Jesus' kingdom. How short-sighted, how selfish. They're focused on themselves. They care nothing for what Jesus is about to go through. And here's what Jesus tells them in Luke 22, starting in verse 24. A dispute also arose among them as to which of them would be regarded as the greatest. And he said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as the one who serves. For who is the greater, the one who reclines at the table, or the one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at the table? But I am among you as the one who serves." You are those who have stayed with me in my trials, and I assign to you, as my Father assigned to me, a kingdom, that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and sit on thrones 
judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Jesus informs them there's, there's kind of a paradox in God's economy and God's kingdom and how things work. If you want to be great, then you need to be the lesser. If you want to be great, you need to become a servant. And the kingdom of God has been assigned to Jesus, and he's like, now it's been assigned to you, and it's one of service. The rest of the world is going to say, serve me, but I'm telling you to serve others and to serve God. And Jesus uh, tells them that if they want to fit into this kingdom that God was establishing, they're going to have to decide who they're going to serve, themselves or others. And we see a parallel account in John chapter 13 that also tells us that on the night of the Last Supper that Jesus washed his disciples' feet. It may have very likely occurred right after this, after they're arguing about who would be the greatest. Jesus didn't just talk about it, he showed them what service looked like. He took on what typically was the lowest job of the lowest slave in the house, and he washed their dirty feet right after they're arguing about who would be the greatest. Paul tells us in Philippians 2, 5-8, through 8, that even though Jesus was the Son of God, he didn't count equality with God as something to be held on to. Instead, he became a servant even to the point of death on the cross. Jesus points out just how different the disciples were than himself. Their sin of pride and one-upsmanship stood in stark contrast with the creator of the universe getting low enough to wash their feet and to serve them. So were the disciples responsible for the death of Jesus? Yes, I think they were. Their sins of self-service and self-glorification and their own pride made them want to do things to push Jesus and his ways to the side. But there's other people to blame. We have Peter, the sin of Peter. Peter's the ringleader, right, of this group that's arguing about who's going to be the greatest. He's an easy target to blame for Jesus' crucifixion. He's always the one that's going to speak up first. He's always the one that's going to take the lead. And when Jesus needed him most, though, he failed. We read about this in Luke 22, verses 31 through 34. Where it says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan demanded to have you that he might sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Peter said to him, Lord, I'm ready to go with you both to prison and to death. And Jesus said, I tell you, Peter, the rooster will not crow this day until you deny me three times that you even know me. And we see a similar and even more vocal and more arrogant account of what Peter said in Matthew 26, verses 33 through 35. Peter answered him, Though they all fall away because of you, I will never fall away. Jesus said to him, Truly I tell you, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times. And Peter said to him, Even if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Peter truly believed that he was strong. He believed that he was stronger than all of the disciples. He thought so highly of his own personal strength that he didn't even believe Jesus when Jesus said, tonight you will deny me. And he said, no, I won't. He's very arrogant. Of course, we know the rest of the humbling story, and it's listed here in Luke 22, skipping down to verse 54. It says, then they seized him, Jesus, and they led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. And Peter was following at a distance. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and sat down together, Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, 
This man also was with him, but he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, You also are one of them. Peter said, Man, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, Certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. But Peter said, Man, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. And the Lord turned and he looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, Before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and he wept bitterly. The strongest disciple of them all, denying to a servant girl that he even knew the man on trial. In a humbling act of conviction, the rooster crows and Jesus stares into Peter's eyes. And it's almost as if he's saying, you remember what I said? You're not as strong as you think you are. Struck with con- conviction, Peter goes out, he weeps bitterly, and this is right before Jesus is beaten and mocked. Was Peter responsible for the death of Jesus? I think you could say that he was. His sin of arrogance and pride made him want to do things his way and push Jesus to the side. There are really many parties to blame for Jesus' death here in Luke 22. There might be others that I missed, but the last group that we're going to look at is not found here in this chapter. The last group to blame for Jesus' death was not even there that night, at least not physically. Spiritually, though, they were. Their sins weighed heavy on the Son of God that night, and those are the sins of you and of I. The last group that we're going to look at tonight is us. Our sin, your sin, my sin is to blame for the death of Jesus Christ. So the last point tonight is my sin. As we started off our time together, it's so easy to blame others, isn't it? You know, it's easy to see the error of the ways of other people. We look at the chief priest and the scribes and the officers and we say, what a bunch of evil, shallow hypocrites. How, how could they treat Jesus like that? It's easy to blame Judas. What a terrible friend. What a greedy, self-seeking man. It's easy to see the self-serving pride of the disciples. Man, did these guys learn anything in the three years that they were with Jesus? It's easy to see the arrogance of Peter. How many more times is this guy going to stick his foot in his mouth and throw out empty promises? But you know, in our own sin and our own pride, we cast judgment on these people like we know nothing about those kind of sins. Yet the Word tells us to be careful if you think you stand lest you fall. No temptation has seized you except for what's common to man in 1 Corinthians 10, 12, and 13. And it also tells us in James 3, 2 that we all stumble in many ways. Have you ever been like the chief priests, the scribes, the officers, being superficial, being self-righteous, just going through the motions of your faith or just going through the motions at church? Have you ever done that before? I bet you have. I know that I have. Have you ever been like Judas? Have you ever lied to a friend? Have you ever said, yeah, I'll pray for you about that or yeah, I would love to provide some help for you. Just let me know if you need it and you never did. Have you ever done that? I know I have. Have you ever put yourself first and what you wanted over someone else that was close to you just like he did? I bet you have. I know that I have. 
Have you ever wanted earthly treasure over heavenly treasure, just like Judas, and desired the things of the world over the things of God in your greed? I have. I bet you have too. Have you ever been like the disciples and put yourself first over others and wanting to be served instead of serving? I bet you have. I know that I have. Have you ever been like Peter and arrogantly thought too highly of yourself and your own abilities only to fail to deliver? I know that I have. And I bet you have too. In fact, I bet if you think very hard about this and you had a little time to reflect, which you will here in just a little bit, there will be times even this week where you can think about, you know what, I've done that. I did that today. I had that attitude recently. If you struggle to think about that, you're like, I, I, I don't know, I can't identify with those people. I, I can't think of having that attitude or those actions, those words in a long time, maybe even ever, then I want to suggest to you that you are more entrenched in your sin and your pride than those that can think of specific times that have happened in their lives just this week. Because we all stumble in many ways, and we do it often. Those sins, your sin and mine, are just as much to blame as the sins of those who were on the scene that night. Our sin rested squarely upon the shoulders of Jesus. That's why he was crucified. If you're a believer, your sins rested squarely on the shoulders of Jesus, causing him to suffer and die. But worse news than that is if you aren't a believer, your sin rests squarely on your shoulders. And God's not going to judge Jesus for that like he will with believers. He's going to judge you on judgment day for the sins that you've committed. Sins that we commit against other people or sins that we commit against God, according to David, who said, against you and you alone have I sinned in Psalm 51.4. Have you acknowledged that? That's the hard part of the gospel. That's the tough part of the gospel. That's the bad news that people struggle with. People love the good news. Oh, Jesus loves me? That's great, because I kind of feel like I deserve to be loved. The bad news of the gospel is you don't. You don't. You have stumbled in many ways, and you are deservant of judgment for that. Have you acknowledged that? Have you acknowledged, I am to blame. I am to blame for the cross. My personal sin put Jesus on that cross. Do you live in a continual, humble acknowledgement of that? We should. We should, I should, you should. I want to end our time with this sobering passage in Romans chapter 3, verses 9 through 25. And Paul has went through at the beginning of Romans and has basically made a case that it doesn't really matter if you're a Jew and you've received the oracles of God and you've received God's written word in the Old Testament. Or if you're a Greek or a Gentile that doesn't have any of that. He's like, it doesn't matter because every single one of us is a sinner. Every single one of us is under the judgment of God because of our sin. And here's what Paul says in Romans 3, 9 through 25. What then? Are we Jews any better off? No, not at all. This makes me think of the people that we looked at tonight. Are we any better off? Are we better than the scribes and Pharisees? Are we, are we better than Peter? Are we better... Than Judas? Not at all. 
For we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, all are under sin, as it is written, none is righteous. No, not one. No one understands. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have all become worthless. No one does good. Not even one. Not in their own strength. No one does. Paul goes on to describe that basically from head to toe, we're sinful. He says, their throat is an open grave. They use their mouths to deceive. The venom of asp is under their lips. Their mouth is full of curses and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. In their paths are ruin and misery. In the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. What was the point of the law? What was the point of the Ten Commandments? What was the point of all these rules and commands that God had in the Old Testament? What was the point? It was to show people God's expectation is so high you'll never attain it because you're a sinful person. You're self-seeking. There's no way you will ever achieve the holiness that I demand. And so the whole point of the law was to show people you're sinful. But Paul goes on, but now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there's no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by His grace. It's not something you earn. It's a gift. It's through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Are we better than they? Are we better than they? No. No, none of us are. We are all under sin. None of us seek God in our own strength. We have all followed things that are worthless with our tongues, with our mouths, with our feet, with our eyes. And my question for you is, do you really, in your heart of hearts, believe that about yourself? That apart from God, apart from Christ, that's me. That's who I am. I have loved the things that God has hated and been drawn to those. When Paul says later on in Romans chapter 5 that Christ died for the ungodly, do you readily identify and say, yes, that's me. That is me. I'm that ungodly person that he's talking about. Christ died for me, the ungodly. On Judgment Day, Paul makes it clear in Romans chapter 3, there will be no chance to explain away your sin to God. Your mouth will be stopped. We only have one hope. We have one hope. That's Christ alone. That's his redemptive blood. And that's why Good Friday is good. Because there's nothing good in us. All the goodness was found in Jesus alone and what he chose to do for us on the cross. Our righteousness is only found in the righteousness that he has gifted to us by faith. You're not good. I'm not good. Christ is good. Acknowledge this before God. And when you do, you will receive a good gift of eternal life and forgiveness from God. Let's pray. Father, as we think about Good Friday, my hope is that we come to you 
with maybe a heavier heart than we do on other days. Of course, we want to be an acknowledgement of our continual need for you every day. We want to confess sin to you continually because we still, even as believers, we still struggle with that. But we are so thankful for Good Friday. Just as much as the chief priests and the scribes and the officers and Judas and the disciples and Peter, we're to blame. Uh, We acknowledge, God, that so oftentimes we want to shift blame. We want to point the finger. We want to talk about how terrible someone else is and not look at the log in our own eye. But the cross shows us our sin's a big deal to God. It's a huge deal. Christ, we are in honor. We are, you are to be honored. And we want to honor you for the sacrifice that you made for us. Our sin was heavy upon your shoulders, the perfect Son of God, the Lamb of God that came to take away the sins of the world. For those that believe, I pray that those that are watching tonight, that they have made that commitment. They have acknowledged their sin. They've acknowledged their own personal blame for Christ going to the cross, that they've confessed that and received Jesus and the forgiveness that he offers and the righteousness that he offers that's found in him alone. Jesus, we are indebted to you. Thank you for what you went through for us so long ago. Thank you for continuing to stand in the gap between us and a holy God. Thank you for giving us your righteousness. Thank you for forgiveness. Thank you for clothing us with that each and every day as believers. We are indebted to you. May we want to live for you and live a life of holiness out of thank you for what you've done. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.